Welcome to Franklin Covey's second episode of our newest podcast, C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. I'm your host each week where we have interesting, thoughtful, vulnerable, candid conversations with members of the C-Suite across all organizations and industries worldwide. And today, I am delighted that the CEO of one of the biggest and most influential publishing firms in the world, Simon & Schuster, has joined us. His name is Jonathan Karp, and he's joining us today from his office in New York City. Jonathan Karp, welcome to C-Suite Conversations. Hey, Scott. Great to have you, man. I like your bookcase. It's always good to see that a publisher is buying lots of books and reading voraciously. Jonathan, looking forward today to a broad-ranging conversation. Uh, You and I have been friends for many years. You are a big champion, of course, of the Franklin Covey Company, having published many of our books, starting with our seminal book from Dr. Stephen R. Covey, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. You have published his son's book, The Speed of Trust. You've published The Four Disciplines, The Five Choices, a book that I co-authored, Everyone Deserves a Great Manager. Simon Schuster published First Things First, which at its time nearly 30 years ago was the most influential and biggest ever-selling book on time management. You got an eye for talent. We'll talk more about some of the books coming up in a few minutes. Jonathan, will you take some time and kind of walk us through the early years of your career before we get into the C-suite experience? What was your first job? Well, my first job was uh, actually as a newspaper reporter. And I was working, uh, you know, for the Providence Journal and the Miami Herald. And I was actually sent to cover a, uh, a fire. It was a garbage dump that was on fire. And uh, that was when I realized it was time to get into book publishing. Jonathan, what were the biggest lessons you learned from your earliest jobs as a journalist? Oh, that's such a great question. Who, what, when, where, why, how? Uh, If you ask those essential basic questions, uh, basically in every uh, work-related function you have, you will be well-informed. You will have the context that you need to do your job. So, Jonathan, you've been in the publishing industry for a long time now, eminently qualified to become the CEO of Simon & Schuster, You were elevated to that role after the uh, most unfortunate and untimely passing of the former CEO. When you became CEO, what were the biggest challenges you saw facing Simon & Schuster? Well, it was right in the middle of the pandemic. So the real challenge was to hold the company together to give them a feeling of community and a shared purpose and a very clear direction forward. So that's that's what my primary focus was. So we began having monthly town hall meetings. I made it a real priority to bring authors more into the conversation. So we were having monthly meetings with authors as well. I had a mantra that I um, that I began in my very first speech to the employees, which was, uh, let's talk about the books. Because I really do think that when we are talking about the books, that's when we are at our best. We are only as good as the books and the authors we publish. So that's been my mantra, and I'm sticking to it. Jonathan, uh, Simon Schuster is known for many imprints. You've published some of the biggest books of our time uh, for generations. What do you think is the ethical or perhaps moral responsibility of a publisher? Obviously, you can have a significant impact on how people choose to vote and what kind of businesses they open and who they follow. And you even can change perhaps, you know, elections based on how you might green light or stop books. What do you think is the responsibility of a publisher in the types of books that they green light and distribute? 
I think we have a responsibility to put ideas out into the world in a way that is responsible and civil. That's what I try to encourage our editors to do. I understand that sometimes uh, authors will state their views in a way that is inflammatory or upsetting to a certain part of the population. And all we can do as publishers and editors is to query them on whether they really mean to say what they're saying and are they aware of the way it's coming across. Ultimately, if we believe that the voice has uh, an original contribution to make, then we go forward with it. And there are going to be times when uh, we are on the wrong side of public opinion. And uh, we've been, we've obviously been uh, challenged uh, by even the Justice Department um, and by the Trump administration on some of the books we published. But we, we believe that in order to foster a well-rounded debate, you have to include a wide range of voices. And I also believe that part of being inclusive means that you never want to exclude voices. So as long as the author is making a sincere attempt to communicate a message in a way that is responsible, that, that meets our standards of accuracy and fairness. Um, we try to be very open to uh, a wide range of views. Jonathan, I'm guessing a publisher CEO's worst nightmare is when you get that phone call where um, uh, someone's being accused of having plagiarized a book that you published, or they've written a book that perhaps is you know, um, in a lawsuit or is being embargoed by, you know, the CIA or, or there's some reason why, you know, some legal action is being foisted upon them. How do you make decisions on when you stop publishing a book or perhaps you rescind the offer to publish a book based on some criminal, you know, behavior? I mean, lots of this happens frequently. What's that like when you get that call and how do you make those decisions on go or no go? It isn't, it isn't easy, and you really want to have compassion for the, the author because obviously somebody has put a lot of their heart and their soul into the book usually, and a lot of these issues are complex. Uh, often you find that there is no right or wrong, and it, it is oftentimes a judgment call. We try to, uh, we try to publish everything uh, to the fullest extent possible. And, and when, whenever we have to retract a book or cancel it, it's anomalous, it, it's rare. Um, and you know, as, as I said last year, you know, we, we come to the office to publish books, not to cancel them. So we don't, we don't like having to do it. Jonathan, let's talk about the state of the book industry. For everyone you talk to, you get kind of different point of view. Can you just kind of maybe statistically tell us how are books doing right now? You hear these things that, you know, during the pandemic, business books tended to lessen a bit and romance and fiction and children books did well. What generally is the state and kind of how is it flushing out in terms of consumption, print, audio, digital, things like that? Well, um, across the industry, uh, the, the adult trade book business is about a $10 billion a year book business. And um, sales are, are actually up across the board pretty much for um, all publishers, as far as I can see, in the adult trade world. And we think that there are a number of reasons for why that's the case. Uh, first of all, uh, there has been a, a lot of uh, stimulus, uh, economic stimulus, so that's part of it. 
Uh, it's possible that more people are home and they have time to read. Maybe there's only so much Netflix you can watch or Paramount Plus, I should say. Uh, so there, there's that too. And, uh, and then maybe people just want to read books. Maybe we're actually getting better at finding audiences through social media. And, uh, it's, and, and actually the digital, digital communications have become so much more targeted that we're able to identify and reach readers online better than ever before. Turns out that TikTok has been a tremendous yeah. Uh, yeah. phenomenon yeah. In, in helping us sell books. One of our authors, uh, Colleen Hoover, has been uh, enormously helped by a huge following that she has on TikTok. Which segment's growing mo most? Is, is, is it true that audiobooks are on an exponential rise and kind of digital tends to be about flat? What's happening in terms of the actual physicality of books? Yes, uh, audio has been the fastest growing segment of the, of the environment. And that is because audio appeals to all demographic books, young people, all demographic groups, I should say. Uh, young people are, are reading them or listening to them. Uh, so are older people. Um, my mother takes a walk with an audio book um, almost every day. That's how she gets her steps in. So uh, every, everyone is listening to audio books and that is, that's had double digit growth over, over a decade, I think. And uh, eBooks have been pretty flat. Um, they went up a little bit during the pandemic when people were going, going into, uh, when people stopped going to stores for a while, but that, that's actually flattened out. And, um, and print sales are actually uh, steady or a little bit up. So uh, all, all parts of the book business are healthy right now. Uh, Jonathan, how do you read books? Are you still in print or are you, have you moved to audio? I am all three. I actually listened to uh, an audio book over the weekend. I was reading a lot on my iPad and then of course I was reading print books too. I, I'm, I'm a multi-format. Uh, convenient answer, my friend. Hey, uh, a friend of Franklin Covey's was a man named Clayton Christensen, arguably one of the most genius teachers of our generation. He was a member of Franklin Covey's board of directors. He, of course, wrote seminal books, including How Will You Measure Your Life and Innovator's Solution, Innovator's uh, Disruption and such. Um, you know, Clayton always thought that one of our biggest competitors was non-consumption. People who weren't buying any product, not just your competitors, they weren't either educated about the product or, in your case, perhaps they weren't readers. How does Simon & Schuster, looking forward, plan to address this idea of what percentage of the population just aren't readers? And why do you think that is? And what can the publishing world and Simon & Schuster do about just non-consumption of books, period? Well, first of all, there are literacy rates. And one of the things that's a little bit concerning to me is that uh, even though people are functionally literate, uh, there's a significant portion of the public that's not much more than functionally literate. It might be as much as 25 or 30 percent of the public is just barely reading. So those people are going to be hard to reach to begin with. Um, then uh, the good news, though, is that the overall literacy rate is growing. So there are more people. Obviously, the population grows and more of those people are readers. So that's a good thing. How do we reach them? Well, uh, obviously, get them while they're young. That's the first thing. And we are, we are doing that, and we're doing that with increasing success. Uh, the children's, uh, children's books are growing. Obviously, um, millennials are buying books for their kids now. And we are selling a lot of books for early readers, beginning readers, and then middle grade and, and young adult readers. 
And um, so to answer your question specifically, I will tell you that probably the most exciting book that I read over my holiday vacation is a book for young readers that's called Skandar and the Unicorn Thief. And this book has already been sold to over 30 uh, territories throughout the world, which is a phenomenal number. Uh, yeah. it's a, it's a, she's a Cambridge-educated, uh, first-time author. This came out of the United Kingdom. And it's, a, it's basically a, a bookseller for, uh, from, uh, from Waterstones has already said that if this book isn't the next Harry Potter, the world has gone mad. <laughs> and after reading it this, uh, this, this holiday, I realized that uh, that bookseller is absolutely right. This book completely transported me. It made me feel the way I felt when I read the Chronicles of Narnia or um, or A Wrinkle in Time, or Harry Potter. And I think we're going to get a ton of young readers when they read Skandar and the Unicorn Thief. So that's just, that's just one example. So you're both the CEO and the CMO, right? <laughs> I love the fact that you're able to work the books in. Hey, Jonathan, in our first interview, we interviewed David Neeleman, the serial um, aviation entrepreneur that founded many airlines, JetBlue, Morris Air, Azul in Brazil, and now Breeze here in the U.S. And David is known as being a high-energy uh, infuser. He, is a, he acknowledged he has an ADHD you know, challenge in his life. And when I asked him what it was like to report to him, without tripping, he said, I hear it's maddening. <laughs> if I were to ask you the same question, what's it like to report to you? What would you say? I would hope that people would say that I'm, uh, I'm empathetic and that I listen. I don't, I, I, I was actually, I had an idea for, uh, for an advice book, and the title of it was going to be, Please Don't Be Crazy. And, uh, and I try not to be crazy. I, I really, I, I do think, though, I heard a really wise thing once from a manager who said that every person you work with is going to have one thing about them that is very important to them and seems a little mm. bit off to you. Mm. And you just have to give them grace and have a little bit of patience for that one thing. And as long as they're performing, just ignore it. So uh, <laughs> I've always kept that in mind. And I, I really do try to be uh, you know, a good listener and, and a, regular, a, regular, a regular person. I, I, don't, uh, I don't really try to bring very much attitude to, uh, to my conversations with people. That was good marriage advice, right? <laughs> Not just leadership advice. Take that a step further. Um, I'm guessing some things have changed about you since you became the CEO. Uh, it doesn't mean you're a different, you know, your morals are different or your character is different, but I'm guessing you've chosen to change some things. Perhaps you are a better listener, or maybe you're more calibrated, or maybe you're more reserved, or you're just more aware of the consequences of what you say and write and do. To the extent there's truth in that, I bet there is, what has changed as you've moved into the CEO position of a very public company with a lot of responsibility, your words matter. In fact, for that matter, every leader's words matter. What has changed about you? That is a really good question. And I think that uh, for me, it is sort of the, the centering yourself. Um, my first instinct almost always to everything in life is comedic. I actually had the great honor of working with Jerry Seinfeld recently, and uh, and, I, and that was a labor of love for me because I, I love comedy, and and it's hard to be uh, to be uh, a wise guy in this kind of a job, and so I've really had to tamp that down yeah. and and resist the urge to make jokes, 
and 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 or even to be lighthearted about things. I mean, especially in the midst of a pandemic. And you know, my first instinct was always, you know, in all of my public utterances, was to always be positive and to uh, and to and to really err on the side of, you know, everything's going to be great and we're doing all right. And 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 the reality is, there were some people who really didn't like that. Um, they they wanted me to acknowledge the the sadness and the heartbreak that we were living through. And I did I did get a little bit better at that as time went on. But um, I, I was a little bit taken aback that people felt that I was not as sensitive to those feelings as I should have been. But it was my natural instinct to, to almost try to just smile my way through the adversity. Mm. And uh, so I think that engaging people emotionally um, was something that I had to learn to do a little bit more. Jonathan, thanks for the vulnerability. Take it a step further. Did you have some people who thought they knew you well, and perhaps they liked your humor or your sarcasm or your lightheartedness? Do you think you had some people feel like you were more distant then, or perhaps you were all business? Did that have a, a downside to some of your relationships because you recognized the gravity of what might have come across as humor to lighten the mood might have felt like you know diminishing to someone? Did some people comment that they didn't like that? Um, yes. Uh, I think that, you know, I, I've heard it both ways. I've heard people say, I wish you would, I wish you would acknowledge the heartache and the heartbreak mm. more often. And I've mm. also heard people say, I wish you'd let us get to know you better. Mm. And uh, it's, but you know, the, the thing about letting us get to know you better, I've, I've always wondered about that because I do think that it shouldn't really be about me. And so I'm, I really, when I read Jim Collins, it really did have an, impact on me. And I really do take the whole idea of the servant leader very seriously. And so I like to end a lot of my conversations with how can I help you? And I don't really want it to be about me. And what I enjoy the most actually is talking to people. If I'm, if I'm just sort of um, schmoozing with somebody, I love the word schmooze, by the way, I think it's a terrific word. <laughs> um, but if I'm, if I'm talking about things that are, are, are incidental or perhaps even irrelevant to work, I, I would much rather meet them halfway on, on a subject that might be of mutual interest to both of us rather than having it be something that's either personal about me or personal about yeah. the other person. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Jonathan, let's talk about gut and instinct. You know, in a world where data and AI is driving so much of our decisions, you know, there's books that say go with your gut and there's books that say it's all about data. There's books that say you got to have a balance of both. Is there an instance in your time as a publisher, as an editor, now as a CEO, where your gut told you we're going to pass on this book because all the data says or the data says we should, but my gut says we shouldn't or the, the, the opposite. The data said, you know, the opposite of what you thought. Was there something, a book in particular, where your gut told you you should do it and it turned out to be a good thing, um, contrary to what the data would tell you. Well, we we make we make those kinds of calls every day, and it's weird because it's I called don't parenting, actually, I right? It's called parenting. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but in terms of like the the content acquisition, we make decisions about what to buy and and how much to offer for it, you know, every week. And it is true that a lot of the time when it's a when it's a book by a personality, especially somebody with an Internet presence, you can see the level of engagement 
that those people have online. And sometimes it seems like an easy call if they've got a highly engaged following. You think, well, okay, this is a good bet. But then it turns out that mm, they didn't really have that much to say or they didn't say in a way that people felt that they needed it. So I do think that there, there is an analytical part to it. You can look at the data and see that, oh yes, this really does reach a lot of people. Um, but then a lot of the, a lot of the time, it's, it is just a gut call. Uh, for example, I mean, Tom Brady is on my mind right now because I watch him every Sunday and I just marvel at his uh, tenacity and his, uh, his, his genius, I think, for, for leadership. And uh, we published the TB12 method, and that was, that was a gut call. I just thought, this guy is uh, the greatest of all time, and we want to be in business with him. And, uh, and I'm really glad we made that call. And that was gut. Even though he had a lot of people on Facebook following him, that wasn't why we bought it. That wasn't why we bought the TB12 method. We bought the TB12 method because we believed in Tom Brady. Jonathan, to that point, was there a time perhaps when your confidence, your gut turned into hubris and you perhaps were crazy about an idea and someone let you have that and it turned out not to be as good as you were convinced it would? Sure. You know, it happens all the time. And, um, you know, and I can't, you know, and I can't explain, you know, why it happens, except that sometimes the book doesn't come in the way you'd hoped it would. Sometimes the publicity just isn't there and uh, people never hear about the book. Uh, sometimes um, you're just dead wrong. Uh, one of our producers here a couple hours ago said to me, she thinks everybody's got a book in them. And whether they want to write a book or not could be debatable. If you were speaking to the roughly half of the world's population that may think they have a book in them, What's a formula for a great book in 2022? A book that is relevant, it sells, it's profitable, it's meaningful, it's influential, it can market well. If you were speaking to the people who are thinking about or writing a book now or wanting to find a publisher, what's some insight you would give them on at least a good set of variables that could help launch them well? Well, I think there's something that Chris Matthews used to say on his talk show all the time. Tell me something I don't know. I mean, that's the first thing. I think that also, are you saying something that only you can say? Uh, what is the mm. unique selling proposition, for lack of a better phrase? I realize that's a marketing term, but I actually think it applies to a lot of storytelling as well. What do you know that that no one else can tell us quite the way you can? And even if it's, a, even if it's made up, what is it about your perspective that, that makes this story that you've envisioned in your mind um, something that people would care about? I mean, just, just for example, I mean, and I don't mean to be too much of a chief marketing officer here, but uh, the scandal and the unicorn thief, I mean, this is an original story about uh, boys and girls who ride unicorns. And what an interesting original idea. I've never seen that before. So sometimes it's just having an idea that nobody else has. John, let's talk about the future. Um, video books, book clubs, masterclass. I mean, you see so much going on around trying to bring intimacy between authors and their readers. What does the future look like? I mean, are we going to be watching books? Are we going to keep listening to books? What, what do you think 
well, you know, 15 years from now, will Barnes & Noble still be around? Will I be going there with my teenage sons, buying books on Saturdays? What's your, um, what's your crystal ball tell us? Yes, Barnes & Noble will still be around in 15 years. Good to hear. I, and I think they're a, great, they're a great store, by the way, great company. Uh, so the, I think that the world is going to evolve. I do think that um, digital uh, technology allows us to come closer together with authors and to integrate video in ways that we haven't before. But there are also these things called documentaries and also movies. So I don't really think that the world is going to change that much. I still think that people are going to read books for uh, one reason, which is uh, the singularity of a writer's voice and vision. That is what we can offer that nobody else can offer. Uh, we could, sure, we could create books with more video in them, but there are uh, movie studios, producers, uh, all, you know, Pixar, they can do all of that a lot better than us. So what we can do better than anybody else, what, better than any other company, is we can work with writers who have been thinking about something for a really long time and help them distill it to its essence and communicate it with a, um, a precision and also um, you know, a, a, um, an enduring value. And, uh, and that's why I think um, the book industry is going to be healthy for for many, many more years, and let's not forget that uh, it goes back to the <laughs> goes back to the to the time of Gutenberg, right? So uh, nothing has changed that much. I keep thinking of that pop song, um, you know, uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. I think that that's true for book publishing. As the CEO, who do you seek advice from? Well, um, I there are actually my colleagues. First of all, I mean, we have a really terrific. Uh, Chief Financial Officer and Chief Operating Officer Dennis Ulao, who um, who I've worked with very happily for more than a decade, and he is a, he is a terrific uh, advisor. And uh, as are as are all of um, my colleagues on the executive staff, all of the publishers and our Chief Marketing Officer and uh, our Legal Counsel. So I, I talk to all you know our our Sales Director. I, I count on all of my colleagues a lot. And um, then there are uh, then there are former CEOs uh, from the publishing world who I talk to and who are tremendously valuable in their insights. And beyond that group, Jonathan, when you're looking uh, or when you're being influenced by someone, what are the characteristics of the person that influences the CEO of Simon and Schuster? Maybe not the names of the people, but as you think about the people beyond the names you just mentioned, or perhaps even those names, what are the personality, competence, character traits? the types that people have that you find end up having you change your mind, that you perhaps move off your position onto theirs. What, what, what types of people influence you? Well, I, I, I think that I'm most interested in people who uh, state their position in an eloquent way and bring a perspective to it that I just lack. Um, so much of decision making is about context, right? So, and and I've and I've really found this to be true the longer I do the job. That um, that if somebody broadens your context and gives you mm. a basis for a decision that you wouldn't have otherwise had insight into, I think that that's a uh, a real benefit. I'll give you another quality that I think has been huge. Uh, my predecessor in the job, Carolyn Reedy, had tremendous curiosity. 
And she would just ask questions all the time. And I did a book at around the same time I was starting to work with Carolyn with um, the movie producer, Brian Grazer. And the book was called A Curious Mind. And it was about how he had gotten into the habit of having curiosity conversations um, once or twice a month with complete strangers. And he would, he would approach them cold, say, I just like to talk to you. I just have some questions. And they would be people in all walks of life, firefighters, lawyers, uh, you know, intellectuals. And he would just take them to lunch and talk to them for a couple of hours. And that was how he got a lot of his movie ideas. And uh, we published this book because it was, uh, it was, uh, it was sort of a, a, a call to, um, to being more curious in your life. And I think that applying that same kind of curiosity uh, to your work life um, is just tremendously, tremendously nourishing. So I, I try to be very curious and I, I love asking people questions. The best thing about this job, um, the best thing about it, when I got the job, it was realizing that I could ask anybody in the company a question and they would have to answer it. And I love that. <laughs> so for all of young adults, go read the book about unicorns. For all, all adults, A Curious Mind is one of my top 10 favorite books. The story about Brian Grazier interviewing Isaac Asimov and uh, his then wife standing up and walking out of the meeting because she felt that Brian hadn't put enough investment into understanding her husband's work. I've told that story hundreds of times about what it means to be a good interviewer, like doing your research work. I highly recommend the book a Curious Mind. I've been stalking Brian Grazier for three years to be on our podcast. So if you can uh, slip him my number, I'd appreciate it. Uh, it's an excellent See book. See what I can do. Excellent <laughs> book, Jonathan. Hey, let's, let's finish our conversation talking about talent. You know, we, we're, we hear this term about the great resignation and the great retirement and that there's lots of reasons why people are, are leaving their jobs. You know, now you ask someone who's leaving where you're going and they usually say, I don't know. <laughs> They're not quitting to go somewhere. They're just quitting because their world's been rocked, right? Their values have changed post-pandemic. Perhaps they can retire now. It's, a, it's an important role, is it not, to be the chief re-recruitment officer, to make sure your talent stays, to be the chief recruitment officer. I once heard someone, I was the CMO of Franklin Covey for nearly a decade, and I once at a CMO conference heard someone say, a CMO's top job is as the recruitment officer, is to build a brand where people want to come and work there and stay there. I'm guessing you have a, a increasingly mature and well-developed point of view on talent and diversity um, amongst the thought of your um, leaders and employees. Talk a bit about what your point of view is on talent recruitment and talent retention. Well, obviously it's essential, and I can't imagine there'd be any CEO who would say otherwise. Uh, for me, it's, it is about um, a wide range of diversity, obviously racial and ethnic diversity, but intellectual diversity, diversity of thought, geographic diversity, diversity of class. I think that um, we have to be thinking much more broadly um, if we're going to reach all readers. And, uh, and for too long, I think um, a lot of publishing has been skewed toward a, an urban um, upper middle class uh, sensibility. And so we are really working to transcend that. And uh, if anybody wants to work for Simon & Schuster, please go to our website because we, uh, we're looking for fresh talent and for people who really are, who share our passion for bringing new voices um, to the public. Jonathan, finish this off with a thought about 
what it's like to be the CEO of an organization. Obviously, you have you know, a global imprint. You have a very strong voice. I think probably just north of 1,500 employees, um, at least in the US. What do you see as the key responsibilities of being a CEO? Well, I, first of all, I, I think first like a publisher and an editor. And you know, the word publish, it comes from Latin and it means uh, to make known. So, you know, at, at our heart, that is what everybody at Simon & Schuster is doing in some way. We are trying to make our books and our authors known. And we're doing that through marketing, through really great design, through publicity, uh, by producing the most beautiful books we can produce. And obviously by finding the most relevant, interesting, entertaining, um, and, and, and um, exciting writers we can find. And so I'm most, most focused on that, creating an environment that allows people to express their passion for the work that they're doing in a way that gets the word out about our authors in the most dynamic way. Jonathan, what's your favorite book of all time? Oh, wow. <laughs> you know something? Before I answer that, um, I, first of all, I should say that um, I'm very grateful to Franklin Covey for all of the books that we've published with you. Um, obviously, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People is a canonical book for our company, um, as are many other books. Um, and, uh, and I really should mention the book that uh, is coming from us in April, because it's by Stephen M. R. Covey, and it's called Trust and Inspire. And it really was revelatory for me, because it, it establishes something that I think is really essential for any CEO to understand right now, which is that we've got to move from a culture of command and control, where we're over-managing our people, um, to a culture of trusting and inspiring them. Um, and I think the trust and inspire really hits that note beautifully. Um, my favorite book of all time is probably the book that I edited, um, and it's it's Sea Biscuit by Laura Hillenbrand wow. because that was a book that really changed my changed the trajectory of my career. It was a it was a it was a it was a book that we we acquired for a reasonable amount of money um, with um, very modest expectations. And it became uh, one of the biggest bestsellers of its time. And uh, it was also a book that made me realize that when you move people, because that book made people feel something, when you move people, um, you, can, you can reach multitudes. Haven't read it, need to add Seed Biscuit to my list. Hey, our conversation today was Chief Marketing Officer, I mean Chief <laughs> Executive. No, I love that, that's a compliment because more CEOs should be evangelizing their brand. More CEOs should be invested in promoting their products and not just ensconced in the C-suite doing investor relations stuff. I love the fact that you know your coming titles, that you have a point of view on your product and that you're proud of it. I think it's a great model for all CEOs to swing open the door of their executive suite and get amongst their clients and their producers and distributors and evangelize their products and own the own the product just like everybody beneath them has to. Jonathan, thanks for your, your positive uh, infusion of energy today. Thanks for the conversation. Your vulnerability around your strengths and your areas of growth. It's been great talking to you today. Thanks also for your partnership with Franklin Covey and as the publisher of one of the books I've co-authored as well. We appreciate you and Simon Schuster tremendously. Well, I appreciate you. Thank you, Scott. It was a pleasure. And thanks for your time today. We'll see you back here next week with a new conversation on C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller.